story how God manages to use even me. All right, so, okay, let's, let's start by just a couple of points about handling a difficult passage. We've all, most everyone in here has been with me for quite a while, and you've, you've kind of been through this a lot, but I just want to bring it back to your remembrance as we begin what we're going to begin today. Tell me some things as you opened your Bible study this week and began to dive in, particularly when you hit day five and she said, go ahead back and finish up the rest of that chapter uh, 10 then and, and look for interpretations. What are you using as safeguards to help you not go down a crazy path for your interpretations? Number one, remember the full context of the book. I've got to tell you, would you tell me how, you, how have you seen this book in regards to context? How in, essential in this book has context really been? What, what are some things that you're seeing about a person if they were to just drop into anywhere in Hebrews, not even just the two controversial areas, but really anywhere? What do you see about this book that where you really have to see the full flow and you have to keep everything in mind? Okay, one of the things is that comes up is there's this question about salvation and the assurance of it, right? So if you drop into chapter 6 into, the, into that one section of it, it looks like you can't, that you could maybe lose salvation. That's one of the interpretations that you'll see when you go out there online, right? But did you find it interesting if you kept reading, following that verse, starting in verse 9 and 6 on, what did the author then address? Assurance of salvation. Isn't that amazing that it's a sure hope, it's an anchor for the soul, that it's, that, that, that it's steadfast and, and um, it's, it has this confidence building that he gives them, is this pep talk, right after the, quote, verse that says you can lose your salvation. So what does that tell you if he talks about assurance of salvation at the close of 6, where at the beginning of 6 there's this word of, of warning and discipline? What does that tell you if you're trying to come to interpretation about it? It, it obviously does not mean because one, one of the things, there's a couple of points you have to remember. So let's, let's just start, start writing some of these down. Number one, uh, we know that context is essential. So keep your context before you at all times, right? Um, when it comes to, as Becky mentioned, this silly thing, uh, when Be Becky mentioned about the idea that you can lose your salvation, now, as far as inductive Bible study processes are concerned, what would be your rule concerning that coming to try, or, or assumingly coming to that con conclusion? Okay, two things get addressed in that one chapter. Number one, do not violate your known doctrines, and Scripture does not contradict Scripture. So when you're in chapter 6, and the first part of it looks like he's, he's warning them and kind of giving them a, a tongue thrashing, and yet he follows it with an assurance of salvation statement, which you can now conclude if you're a good observer of Scripture and you're really using those in inductive rules to help guide you, you know that Scripture does not contradict Scripture, and therefore your automatic conclusion must be, well, it must be that that's not what he's saying. 
He's, he must not be saying that you can lose salvation, right? So let's write those two things. Context is essential. Uh, never violate your known doctrines. Scripture does not uh, contradict. Mm. Scripture starts with an S, right? <laughs> does not contradict Scripture. When you are looking to establish doctrines, would you use something like Hebrews chapter 6 or Hebrews chapter 10 to establish your known doctrines? What is the rule, inductive process rule, that's, that helps you to make that establishment? What are you supposed to do? Where would you go to get those established? Oh, that's a good one. Hadn't thought of that one in a while. It, the first use of something in Scripture is usually its most clearly defined understanding. Um, that one would be a little tougher to nail down on assurance of salvation. However, if I were going to, I know where I would go. Tell me, Becky, where would you go if you wanted to establish how you know you have assurance of salvation and you can't lose it? Where would be your first known Scripture to help you establish that? Well, Genesis 3 gives you the promises of salvation, but how would you know you absolutely cannot lose it? Come on, think of what is our favorite subject. Covenant. Covenant. Where is the first teaching of covenant in Scripture? With Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, 20, all those right in that section there, but particularly chapter 15, right? So if... If you wanted to get an establishment of your known doctrine, one of the first things you would want to do would be go into the Old Testament where it would be first established and look to see what did God do with the Abrahamic covenant and what do you learn through doing a study of the subject of covenant. Is salvation a covenant? Absolutely. So that would be your first known established point on that particular subject that's clearly taught. So what you want to do is you want to go to your most clearly uh, defined understandings of your subject. So if you wanted to know, for instance, about spiritual gifts, where would you go? You would go to somewhere in the New Testament where spiritual gifts are clearly taught, not an obscure passage that mentions something about a gift, right? There's a really good one in 2 Timothy that, that talks about the laying on of hands and the receiving of a spiritual gift, right? And he says, um, and, but he makes this sort of an impassing uh, uh, statement about it. So it's an obscure passage in 2 Timothy, right? But if you want clearly defined understandings, you're going to go to your, there are four basic passages, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, uh, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4. And those ha are your most clearly defined layouts of doctrinal truths about the gift of spiritual, of spiritual gifts, right, about that subject. So the same is true no matter what your subject is. These are basic principles. So in other words, if you want to never, if you're going to never violate your known doctrines, and if you know that Scripture does not contradict Scripture, you also have to know that you have to go to your clearly 
uh, clearly taught passages on your subject, whatever it is, to establish your doctrines, right? Does that make sense to you? Oh, yes, uh-huh. Hi. Okay, There's, that's another, although we haven't really done that, but oh boy. You know, it's really interesting because when you're trying to define these, your doctrines on any particular subject, whatever it is, you, would you say that you can generally go to just one passage and get it all? That's, the, uh, that's another really good important point, and that is, in, in like manner, therefore, you can't drop into a passage like Hebrews and read one or two or three or four verses and think that that is it. And that's all the information you have on that subject. Because the problem is, is if you, do, if you don't go and look at the other things, you could draw a wrong interpretation. So you need to balance by good cross-referencing, by word studies, by full context, by a full study of that particular subject, if you are still confused about that particular subject. And this is where I think so many people go wrong. They drop into a passage like these difficult ones here in Hebrews, and they say, well, because it says this, well, it says this, well, obviously it's not what you think it means, however. Your interpretation cannot violate your known doctrine. And it cannot violate your understanding of that known doctrine. You have to get your, your understanding of a doctrine from your clearly defined passages, the ones that are not obscure. This would be considered an obscure passage on the subject of salvation as regards to assurance of it. So if you want a clearly defined understanding of assurance of salvation, we now, through earlier talk, have, de have determined you would need to do a study on the subject of covenant because salvation is a covenant. What do we know about a covenant? Can a covenant ever be broken without a consequence? No. And when it comes to a covenant concerning salvation, such as the Abrahamic covenant is, uh, will God ever withdraw his promises that he gave to Abraham? That is, what kind of a covenant is that? Give me some descriptive words concerning that particular covenant. It's an everlasting covenant, eternal covenant, unconditional covenant, and therefore, since it's unconditional, could Abraham have ever done anything or failed God in any way that God would have revoked from Abraham those promises? No. Never. As a matter of fact, there are so many scriptures that you can go to and look at where over and over and over God affirms to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that as long as the the sun and the moon and the stars are shining, God will do this. He will. It's an everlasting promise that he has made to, to Israel and to the, through, mm-hmm. Salvation is 
Well, absolutely, you have to enter into the covenant. In that regard, it's not conditional, but it is entered by faith. Now, what's really awesome is when we keep moving, this is earlier I mentioned to you how important is it concerning uh, setting context in this book. Um, can you drop into any one place in the book of Hebrews and draw a full conclusion on any subject that it's brought up? And the answer is no. This author brings up subject, makes a little statement, he keeps moving, then he brings that same subject up again, and he adds more information to it. So the, the best way to study Hebrews, quite honestly, we will see it better when we get to the very end of having done part one, part two, part three. When it's all done, then we can sit down and we can go all the way back to chapter one and accumulate lists on every, any single one subject because we've already thoroughly studied all the pieces to it, then we can now go back to the beginning and reestablish what we know about any one of the points, whether it be about the priesthood, whether it be about the temple services, whether it be about something like salvation and the assurance of it. You can go back afterwards and do that. There's a major subject in this book that, that is not uh, losing salvation, but what is it? What is he doing in this book with these people? Discipline. It is absolutely a discipline letter. Can, can you say that in your relationship with anyone in your life, but, but uh, I'm going to use specifically children as an example because that's where we have the, the overriding responsibility. In your relationship with your children, is there ever a time when you would say that you, just, you never discipline them? And would that be healthy and good yes. in that relationship? Would you say in our relationship with God that, it is a good thing and a necessary thing for God to discipline. Because do we not all need to be taught? Okay, so as God uses his earthly vessels, such as the writer of this particular book, he is writing in what I, I, I very tongue-in-cheek say, he, he calls it a word of exhortation. But I see it as something, as if you were to define the word exhortation, what are some components of exhortation? Teaching, encouraging, and he uses those words in this particular chapter a couple of times, encourage, encourage, right? Rebuke. So is rebuke an a, a absolute essential part of the idea of, of uh, exhortation? So when he says this is a word of exhortation, you and I's mind immediately goes to what? The warm, fuzzy stuff, the nurturing part, the loving part, the exhorting part, right? But we don't... If, if I said to you, oh, sis, come here, I want to encourage you today. And then I start laying into her, right? She'd be like, go away. That's not encouraging at all. Well, God doesn't say that. God says encouragement is also a, part, a component of it is to rebuke. In this book, back in chapter 6, what did this author do concerning the believers? What did he do back in chapter, actually at the close of chapter 5, he begins by addressing a problem with them. What did he tell them? They had not matured. What specifically had they not matured in? That's not what that particular passage, though, is about. Tell me what that particular encouragement is. What does he rebuke them for not doing? Maturing, right? How do you mature in your faith walk with God? That's right. He talks about the, they, had, they had not matured in the knowledge of the word, right? And the way that you mature in the knowledge of the word is by what? Standing fast. 
standing fast in it, which he's already addressed back in chapter 3, right? He says, those who belong to Christ, those who know him, those who have, have uh, been enlightened by the, and uh, have received the um, enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, they, they uh, hold fast, right? It's those who hold fast that you know. Holding fast, would you call that a work? <clears throat> in regards to this book, when he says you must hold fast in order to attain to something, is that is he saying you're working for your salvation? No, he's not. So what is what is the idea of a of that kind of a work? It's sanctific it's the process of sanctification, isn't it? And when he says that you are to hold fast, what he's actually saying is that he says those who hold fast, let's go back and look at it together real quickly, just so it's fresh in our minds. Go back to chapter 3. It's going to be verse 6 and 14. Draw, go ahead and look at 14, and we'll just look at the 1. It, chapter 3, verse 14. I encourage that you really memorize this particular reference in your chain of things in this book because it's one of, I think, the, the, the hinges in this book that helps pull everything together. He says, For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. So in that statement, he's not saying you have to hold fast in order to attain it, does he? So what is he saying hold fast does? If a person is holding, if you look at my life and you see that I'm holding fast, what does that tell you? It's evidence. Thank you, Susan. You are on target today, girl. Woo. Hot, hot, hot. I guess she gets our gold star for the day because she's like, she, you and I are like one, <laughs> one in mind this morning. This is good. Exactly. It is the evidence of your salvation. So when he speaks about the ideas in this particular book on the whole, repeatedly of where he's saying, hold fast to, to these things, he's really saying, if you hold fast, then you will receive it. He's not saying you can earn it by holding fast. He's saying, if you're holding fast, that's evidence that you have it and you will receive it. Does that make sense? You will receive the rewards, the promises of your eternal salvation. So he says, firm until the end, and he's just saying these are the evidences. If you're holding firm until the end, this is the evidence of, that you have actually entered into salvation. Okay, so, so um, we have context is, is essential, and in this and in the precept lingo, is, uh, context is king, right? We got to, <laughs> so context is king. This particular book for Hebrews especially, Hebrews builds on subjects. So you have to remember that it, with, as you're studying the book of Hebrews. He doesn't just bring up a subject once and then move on to it and you're done, as you see in some of the smaller epistles. In this particular book, he'll bring something up. He gives you one point about it that pertains to the subject that he's into at the moment. He moves on. He'll bring that same thing up again later, and he'll add to it, layering on it, the new insight that he wants to give you about whatever subject is in that particular chapter. So in this book, if you want to get a full understanding of really what he's saying about anything in particular, you have to... Keep that one question in mind, that one subject in mind. Write yourself a note on a piece of paper. Go back to chapter 1 and begin to progressively read chapter by chapter. And every time you see information about your subject, make your list. 
so that by the time you get all the way through the book of Hebrews, you'll have a total picture of what he is saying on that subject. That will really help to rein in misunderstandings or false interpretations in this book. This is one of the, I think, the most challenging things about the book of Hebrews is the fact that, you know, you can jump into one spot, and people do it all the time. They jump into Hebrews and make a quote, and then they come to a conclusion. How many of you have been doing some commentary reading? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I have. I don't know about you, but I have. Tell me how comforting it has been. <laughs> what have you seen by looking at the commentaries on the book of Hebrews? Do they all agree? How much controversy have you seen out there with this particular book? And especially, have you, do you think it's more profound in this book than it is in others? I just need a box of Kleenex, if you don't mind, Lois. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. My nose is... I managed to, during our two-week break, get a cold from my uh, grandson. So <laughs> he shares his kisses with me, and, you know, there you go. Anyway, um, what was I saying? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, commentaries do not agree. Thank you. Martha, you were the only one listening. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, just kidding. Okay, so... In this particular book, I have to tell you, I have gone online a lot this time because I've been really trying to keep my mind open. I do want to hear kind of a little bit of all of it because although I've studied it and I have done my own thorough study, I don't recommend that to people who have not done thorough study. But if you've done thorough study, then you, what you can do is you can listen to these different pastors and, and different writers that, that give you information on, the, on this particular book, and you can glean out of it what you know are absolutely correct. And then, but I can tell you this too, that no one pastor or writer is probably going to have every point absolutely correct, we're, you know, because we're human. And the point is that I'm trying to make here is that you have to use a discerning eye. This is why back in chapter, thank you very much, Lois. This is why back in chapter 5, he presses them so, so strongly, saying um, he says that he wanted to introduce to them the subject of Melchizedek, right? Back in chapter 5, verse 11. And he says, concerning this subject of Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. It's all about you and I disciplining ourselves to have enough knowledge built up and stored up so that we, just as was said to those Bereans, right, back in Acts, that they were of more noble-mindedness than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying to them was true, right? These uh, believers in this particular book had not done that. They had remained babies needing someone to spoon-feed them milk on all kinds of things. In particular, he's speaking to them now on this major subject in this book, which is what? What is our major subject in this book? Jesus is better than. Why was a better than subject necessary for this audience? What was, it, what was the better than? 
the old system. So what do you see then, uh, just as we've gone into chapter 9 and 10 now, what do we see seems to be the temptation or the possible problem that's going on? Possibly they're either going back or what might be another issue? Maybe, okay, maybe adding to, maybe, although he doesn't really address that subject, but he does say something. Go back into chapter 10 with me again. Let's look at, at it together because I want you to see it. Let's look in verses 19 to 25 and just pull out a couple of points. We're going to actually make a list on this in a few minutes when we get there. But I, what are some things that you see here he's actually exhorting them to do? He's encouraging them to do because apparently they've stopped doing it. Obviously, they are not assembling together. And therefore, if they're not assembling, then what are they not able to do concerning one another? Fellowship, encourage one another, right? And so there is one of the major issues. So not only back in chapter 5 where he said to them, you've stopped maturing and growing in your knowledge because you've not trained yourself to handle the word of righteousness well. He says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. They were not able to even do that. Would you say the church is guilty of that even yet today? Is there application for that for even you and I? Even if we are, thankfully, in this group, we are really you know, pressing into the Word of God and we are working hard to train ourselves to discern. But yet there are times when we can slack off too. And so it's, it's good for us to hear these words of encouragement. That this, this is not just, oh, this would be good for you, but this is essential for your spiritual life. It's essential for your growth in Christ Jesus. And what this author is ultimately saying when you go into chapter 6 then and you, you see the discipline statements that he gives him starting in verse 4 through 8 of chapter 6. What, has he, what is he saying to them about those who don't discipline themselves in the word of God? What's going to happen concerning the things that maybe they are spending their life doing? Because they're not spending it disciplining themselves in the word of God. So what are they doing? Well, you think about your friends and neighbors. What are they doing because they aren't coming to Bible study? They're not growing, but what are they spending their time doing? Dead works. That is exactly right, Celeste. Good job. Because in essence, in week, I heard someone in one of my commentaries that I looked at or, or one of the messages I heard, but they were talking about how he, this one man, and I was, he was way off, but he said um, this passage in chapter 10 does not apply to the church today. It only applied to that specific time in history and that one specific church because of the fact that, it, that he took a very particular interpretation of the sin that they were committing and was applying it only to the fact that they were, quote, quote going back to the temple and making sacrifices. But do you think that is the bigger p message in this book to us? Why would God preserve this letter, this particular letter, and have it canonized. Do you think God is sovereign over that, that he, that he preserved this particular book? Okay, if he did that, do you think he did that for, with a book that would only apply to a specific group of people at a very specific time in history? Yeah. 
And therefore, anything else in here is other than just learning a little bit about, you know, the priesthood or whatever, it really has no specific value for you and I. I would, I would absolutely reject that, and I did. And when he said that, I went, boy, buddy, you missed it big time. Because God, the message in this particular passage is this author is rebuking a church who had become lazy in their study habits, and therefore they weren't even able to go on to mature, more mature subjects. They couldn't, basically, they can't connect all the dots. And because they weren't connecting the dots and because they had become immature, uh, or, or not become immature. Well, he, he said actually that they had uh, become dull of hearing, which implied that at one time they were hungry in their hearing, that they were actually anxious about learning at one point, but now they had become dull, and they had stopped the process of gaining knowledge. And in doing that, and then by the time we hit chapter 10, now he's having to really come down on them pretty hard, isn't he? When you read those passages starting in 26 to, to 31, did that just not make your stomach uh, kind of do a, a little flip-flop in there? I know the first few times I read it, I, I didn't understand it. I really struggled with it. But what, I, what I'm trying to build up to here, and, and we're going to start now taking this apart, but I wanted to go back and say we have to really clearly lay these principles of how to do inductive Bible study before us before we go into something like this. Because if you, do, if you don't, a couple of things will happen. Number one, people tend to, to come, and me too, come into a passage with presuppositions already established. And instead of having an open mind to really learn and hear it all, take it all, chew it all up, and then parse out what's bad, throw away, keep what's good, and then draw conclusions. That's what we want to do. That's what an honest healthy way of approaching a, a book like Hebrews is all about. It's not being dogmatic right from the beginning, right? And Unless you're speaking about dogmatics concerning known doctrines, right? So we hold fast to the known doctrines. We remember the context. So now we, we've kind of looked at this bigger picture. These are Jews. They absolutely came out of the Jewish system. The author is a, a subject after subject he brings up is all those things which would, would most especially uh, interest and apply to a Jewish audience. And uh, we know that he has, has had to discipline them already from the beginning. He's hit one subject, which was their undisciplinedness in the word of God. But what's interesting to me is what, when you begin with an undisciplinedness in the word of God, it looks to me like then progressively over time, what's the next thing that falls away? What's falling away in chapter 10? They're assembling together. And their ability to exhort one another. If, they're not, if they don't have a deep personal relationship with God, then they have nothing to give out to their fellow men and women in Christ in the body. And they also feel more, obviously, disconnected. Would you say that? How many people have you ever known, or has it ever happened to you even, where when, if you don't get hooked in, if you don't get plugged in, that pretty soon you don't really feel a personal responsibility or even a hunger or a desire to be there? Does that happen? Yeah. It can happen to any one of us, me, you, anyone. What you have to understand is this word is really teaching us some principles 
to faith walk that we could also begin to highlight. It's another subject in this book that it's subtle and it's, it's a subliminal message. It's not the major message. But we can, we can begin to pull out of this book some really important things about your faith walk that God calls essential. So two things today that we are going to look at just in general is you have to be in the Word of God and you have to stay in fellowship with, with other believers. Those are two qualities of a good, healthy relationship with the Lord. Okay? Those don't get you saved, but those are qualities of your faith walk that you, that you need to have in your faith uh, walk with him. Okay, so now that kind of, get, kind of pulls us back into the thinking. Do you feel like your brain is kicked back into Hebrews at this point a little bit? I hope so because that, that was my point, and I want you to hang on to those, those um, rules, basically, inductive rules as we go through this together. Okay? Now... <clears throat> Um, we are going to go back to chapter 9, and although we've kind of done this a, a little bit a couple times, have uh, you guys know what expository preaching is, right? Where a pastor will go pretty much line by line, and he'll expound on a verse and explain it, then he moves to the next verse and he expounds on it. Well, if you, if you do that with a book like Romans, you could be in there for 16 or 17 years. But, you know, that is one method or, or style of teaching that, that uh, pastors are, you know, I think it makes them really good pastors sometimes. I mean, I, I love li listening to an expository pastor. Today, we're kind of going to be doing that with our homework. We're going to do expository pretty much line by line, but we're going to do it more like paragraph by paragraph and pull out the essential points that are taught. And what I want to do is as we go through 9 and 10, I want to give you an opportunity to iron out any questions that you have about understanding what's being said and why it's being said, okay? And we want to draw out what the author highlights and what he doesn't. And so when you start in chapter 9, right off the bat, is there a kind of a a, a statement that this um, writer gives to us that says, you know, I'm, I'm telling you about this, but it's really not that important right now. Come on, think about it. Read, read, read. Look at verse 5. He's, he's made a mention in verses 1 to 5. What is the subject there in 1 to 5? 1 to 5 is all about the first covenant, right? And uh, it's that it has an uh, earthly tabernacle, right? And he gives you details about it, doesn't he? He gives, he taught, and actually there was one point in there that was really uh Again, another controversial thing where people have wrestled over this. I just didn't think it was that big of a deal. But do you have any questions in there? Before we move through this, because we're going to close it with verse 5, where he says, but of these things, what? We cannot now speak. So does he want you to get wrapped around the axle on all these points in verses 1 to 5? What was his point to mentioning 1 to 5? That there's a there's something to compare to, that there is a contrast. And in this book on the whole, the message is the word what? Better. So there's something that's better than this. So he mentions what there is for them in this earthly realm, that they are 
uh, familiar with and aware of. And this is why he just kind of very quickly rolls through it. Now, for us Gentiles, we're going, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. I don't know what that is. Tell me. And I remember the first time I did this particular study in Hebrews, the first time I, I studied it, and, and then the next time was my first time to teach it. We spent almost all of our focus on verses 1 to 5 because we were all still trying to learn about the tabernacle, right? We didn't understand all these things. There is one um, point in there in verse 4 where there's a little bit of a controversy as far as understanding of it, right? How did we resolve that? Do you remember? he's, He's speaking about the tabernacle. There's an outer tabernacle. And an inner tabernacle. And what's the difference? That's right. So the outer tabernacle, they go into on a daily basis, and that's where the menorah is and the, the table of showbread, right? But inside, the next area is called the what? The holy of holies. And into the inner tabernacle, how often do they go? Only once a year. Okay, so he brings that up, and then he mentions, when he starts talking about the Holy of Holies in verse 3, in verse 4, he says, having what? A golden altar of incense. Now, how did we resolve that? Because when you first brush through, it looks like he's saying that the golden altar of incense is inside the Holy of Holies, correct? But we know it's not from historical record and from everything else, that we, especially when you go to the Old Testament and see how he designed it and told us to set it up. What did he mean by it It has a golden altar of incense in the, uh, pertaining to that? Tell me what, you, what, what did you guys decide? You've had time to think on that, right? It is outside the veil. There you go. So what he's saying is, having an altar of incense, right, which is outside the veil, but because he's speaking of the interior holy of holies, he's saying that altar of incense pertains to what goes on inside. And so he's speaking of the idea that those coals from the altar of incense which are brought in, now what is the purpose of the, of the incense on that altar? What, do, what is it used for within the veil of the holy of holies? That's right. It was an intercessor, wasn't it? The, the, the smoke of the altar of incense would be carried into the inner uh, temple area, into the, into the Holy of Holies, and the smoke of that incense would fill the inner uh, Holy of Holies. And in doing so, what did that picture tell Israel at that time in history? What was the, what was the spiritual message that God was giving them? Okay, absolutely, God is there because God, he, where did God dwell? Oh, that's right, on that mercy seat, right? On the lid of the, of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. So on that mercy seat is where God hovered or dwelt, it said, between the cherubim. But when he brought the incense in, the smoke of the incense then would fill that room so that what would happen or not happen? Not without what? An intercessor. There's the picture. And that's why he's saying having an altar of incense. 
Not that the altar of incense was within it, but he's saying it pertained to the inner sanctuary. The, the altar of incense sat on, in the outer tabernacle, but its work and ministry was for within the veil, right? Who later do we see goes within the veil as a forerunner for us? Jesus himself. So, and if you and I want to, as long, as long as the outer tabernacle stands, right, then it means that it has not been what? That, inner, that holy of holies has not been what? Opened or disclosed is what the scripture says, right? So as long as it has not been made available, has not been opened to us, has not been, access has not been made freely open to us, it's because we have to have an intercessor, between us and God, or God will do what? What will happen to us? Die. We would die. We would be consumed. So the, the altar of incense on the outer uh, sanctuary, the incense of it is brought within. So do you see the word having at the verse 4, the beginning? I would circle that. And just write above it pertaining to or something. So that you understand that what he's saying there is that that golden altar of incense, its ministry work pertains to the inner holy of holies. That's why he makes mention of it. Okay? So there you go. There is one expository explanation. We've kind of doing this line by line, a little by little. We're going to try to hit the points that might be uh, questionable in your mind. And if you have the questions, this is the day to ask them. Because we've only got this week and we've got next week and then we're done until after the summer and then we'll come back and try to pick up on part three, okay? All right, so behind the veil there is a tabernacle, uh, altar of incense, the covenant covered on all sides. So it has an altar of incense which pertains to it. Okay, but then he closes verses one to five after giving you this information about the first covenant and have it having an earthly tabernacle and he says of it what one more time just tell me again what does he say about in verse five but we don't want to talk about it right now they all knew that and the reason we hang out there for hours and hours and study and study is because we're gentiles and we are not that familiar this jewish audience however they were familiar with that they understood those particular points. So for them, just zip right on past that first one through five, done. Okay? That's right. Absolutely. But I, I just think that it's important to bring to the forefront for you and I to understand this is not his major subject. Right? He mentions it so that he has a point of contrast to give to you. Correct? Okay, so that, now let's go into 6 to 10. <clears throat> That's our next section we want to look at. And what did we learn in 6 to 10? Okay, it's not yet been disclosed. And it doesn't. Now, when we look at the subject uh, that's been at hand on this on the whole, we saw, you know, when we did our, our uh, segment divisions, uh, we hit chapter 8. What, was the, what is the major subject that has come up for us at this point? That he is a high priest, and he's high priest of, uh, in chapter uh, 9 over what? What is the second major subject? We see the segment divisions about that, uh, is about the uh, 
um, new covenant, right? But in chapter 9, what is your major theme? The tabernacle. The tabernacle is your major subject, right? So in 9, it's about the tabernacle. He wants you to understand he's, he's the high priest of a better covenant, of a better tabernacle. You could put that whole thing if you wanted to as your title. I just put Jesus, high priest of a better tabernacle. I understand that 8 to 10 is about a better covenant as well, okay? So uh, he's priest of a better tabernacle. And in 6 to 8, when he's talking at this point yet about the, the first one, right, the outer tabernacle and into the, the second, is he talking about the, fir the first covenant or is he talking about the new covenant at this point? He's still talking about the old first covenant, right? And, and concerning that first covenant and the tabernacle and him being a priest of it, what is the information he gives you? What does he tell you about those priests of that old system? They had priestly duties, and how often did they attend to them? Daily. Daily and continually, right? He says, but um, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering that old tabernacle. So he's still making a contrast for us. He's letting us know there's something to compare it to when, we, when he reaches into the new. And he's saying in that old one, they, those priests... We're continually entering. Continue, and therefore, you can draw the conclusion about their work, what? Like washing dishes and mopping floors, what? It never is done. It's, it's warm to me. Is there a way to turn that? Okay, so we're going to put on here. The next point, then, is the first covenant, its priests are continually entering. And I'll just put it this way. Its priests... Again, work is never done. Are continually entering. Now, you can say that in all kinds of ways. You can pick any little statement out of those few verses, whatever says it clearest for you. Um, but what you have to understand is that he's saying they're, they're continually entering into it, therefore, their work is never done. He talks about um, the high priest enters only into the most holy part of it once a year and not without bringing blood. But he says, but he says considering, concerning their work, it never ends. They go in and they go in and they go in and they go in. Yeah. There is. It, it, really, what you can't, I actually have, on one of my points, I had said it's limitations and it's demands. It's a demanding system, but it also is a limited system. What a contrast that is with the new covenant, right? Are there, is, is it a demanding covenant that we've entered into? Are there limitations to our access to God in the new covenant? And what we're going to see now as we move to the next section is that's no. Tell me, are there any questions in 6 to 10 that you want to, me to help you iron out before we move on? Or mowing the lawn. That's another one. Trim. Yeah. It never is done. No matter how many times you do it, it has to be done over and over and over. And what's very interesting is then he's going to go on and he's, gonna, he's going to build on, on the point to that with this next section where he talks about um, the true tabernacle and the contrast with it and how they really differ. 
So in, let's go to 11 to 14, and let's see what do we see there. Yes. Okay. Okay, it's specific, it, it, because remember, what is the purpose to the tabernacle, the earthly first tabernacle? It, it was a foreshadowing and a copy and a picture, right? So it was to teach a spiritual truth. As long as the outer sanctuary was, was um, set apart by a veil between it and the Holy of Holies, that inner Holy of Holies, there was no access, access to it. Who's within the Holy of Holies? God himself. So is there access to God for them, freedom to come and go and to have access to God at all? No. It was really, it, like uh, Heinz brought up, it's limited, right? There were some, there were some uh, barriers between the people and God. And, they, and, you know, the purpose to um, what God was teaching uh, Israel through the temple, we've talked about this before, was the temple system bad? What was the point to a lot of the things that were going on in that? Right. It was, pic it was a picture to teach them a deeper spiritual truth about their relationship with God. So, for instance, when we did the book of Leviticus, the whole book of Leviticus concerning the temple and, this, and the system that they were set up under, their own laws, their, their, their system of worship and their system of law and so forth, it taught them concerning... God and man, what? That God is what? Holy and man is not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. So, all right. So, so the point is, as long as that veil remains, it's a picture for them to help them understand that they still do not have yet free access to God because their sin is a problem that has not been yet dealt with. What it should have actually told them was what about those sacrifices? Were they effectual? Did they actually accomplish salvation? No, no they did not. They were temporary. <laughs> That's true, too. Another subject, but yes. Well, it, it was costly that, that the idea of being made right with God came with a price. And that was one of the pictures that they were certainly taught through that system also. So, that there had to be sacrifice and, and a cost, exactly. And did, was the, when it comes to the new covenant in Jesus Christ, was it a costly salvation he made for us? Did it come with a price for God to, to make that available to us? Absolutely. Okay, so did I answer that question for you, Carol, then? Okay, as long as that veil's standing, it was a picture, it was a... It was a demonstration to them that they did not yet have access to God and their sin had not yet been dealt with, okay? All right, so 11 to 14, the contrast then is made. So here we've got a contrast. Let me, maybe I should use a different color so that shows up better. I want you to see that we're starting to show now contrast. Starting in 11 to 14 now, what is the major subject going on there? Concerning this priest... And his tabernacle work, what? Yeah. If they were continually 
entering under this older system, but what do we learn about Christ in this new one? It's a better tabernacle. Christ entered the perfect one. The perfect or true or heavenly, however you want to say it, tabernacle. There's lots of words to choose from in there, right? And how often did he do it? Once for all. What a, what a difference. Once for all. Okay. So here's another clock. So we see the contrast that's going on between what was said in those first 10 verses with what we're looking at here. Now, when he entered into this, and we're going to just do a very tiny little short lesson. You were actually tasked to do this in your homework. Um, tell me, what do you see as far as the difference between, we know the old system didn't really accomplish anything because the outer sanctuary remained, that veil remained, and it separated man from God, right? Sin had not been dealt with. But in this new one, look in verses 12 to 15 and tell me, what did Jesus accomplish when he entered the perfect tabernacle once for all with his blood? Tell me some of the things that he accomplished. Let's just write them down. Okay, eternal redemption. Now, you looked, did you look at the word redemption? You may not have, but tell me what it means to redeem. To buy them back, to bring them, to return them back to their former state, right? So he, he purchased for us this eternal redemption in verse 12. What else did he do? Okay. Okay, cleansed conscience. And then you can write all the rest of that on your list. I'm just going to stop with that little tiny bit there. He purified our conscience or cleansed our conscience from dead works. Now, what's very interesting is it didn't just stop there. It's kind of like that Ephesians 2 that you're saved by grace, right, and not by works, lest any man should boast. But you were saved to do what? Unto good works, right? So you weren't just, you were saved and it's by grace, but although you were saved and it was by grace, there should be a result that occurs after, correct? There should be some kind of a visible um, manifestation of what has happened within the interior of your heart. So in this passage, do you see it as a, almost a complete, as a, like a sister verse to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Right? And 10. He says here in this one, you are purified. Your conscience has been purified, purified from dead works. Now, what are the dead works specifically speaking of here? The law. The works of the law. You, are, you have been purified from your conscience because under the law, what happened uh, where they had to go year by year and uh, you know, on a continual basis back to make sacrifices, what did that do concerning their conscience there? And about their, their understanding about sin. It reminded them about their sin. It reminded them that they were a sinner. In this new covenant, he's saying to us that we, our conscience has been cleared from what? 
doing those dead works. No need to keep going back and asking God to save you and to save you and to save you and to say, please save me, please save me, please save me. If it's a genuine relationship with God, there should be a release from that guilt if you understand your faith walk with God. And that's where maturing through the word of knowledge is important. I know that a lot of baby Christians struggle with this sometimes. They come, they ask, they walk that aisle sometimes three and four times in some churches, you know, or five or six or more, right? They get baptized over and over and over. Why? Because they still need to grow. What they need to do is grow in their knowledge and understanding of what God did for them. When, they, when you actually enter into a relationship with God, God has done a work for you that frees your conscience from dead works. And then, although you've been freed from those dead works, what? To do what? Freed to do what? To serve the living God. So, yeah, to do a different kind of works for a different reason, correct? Isn't that an amazing thing? So you really are going to see two subjects come up here, the idea of justification and then the subject of what? Sanctification. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so clean, a cleansed conscience to serve the living God. What about in 13? There was something else he did for us. That's right. He sanctified those who were defiled. Now, the image that's given to us is he goes back to the uh, red heifer system under the old and talks about what that, what that particular sacrifice did. But he's making the comparison how much more, he says in verse 14, will the blood of Christ, right? So there is a contrast that's made without it being a direct statement. So you have to draw to the next point by going into the very beginning of that next verse. How much more then will the blood of Christ? So if under the old system they had been um, sanctified, that he sanctified those who were defiled by that sacrifice much more does the blood of Christ sanctify you, right? So that's another thing he accomplished for us when he entered. He sanctified those defiled. I'm going to add on here by sin. I'm just going to add that in. All right. And um, verse 15, go down to 15. There's another one in there. We're going to pull it up into our previous section just because I want to add it to the list he is mediator but what did he accomplish for us oh yeah that, that that is good now I'm going to hang on to that one Donna can hang on to that thought but in order to get us there what did he have to do for us Re redemption right he says a death has taken place for the redemption of what transgressions that were committed under the first covenant so he actually redeemed us up here he he attained eternal redemption here it's just slightly different it says he redeemed us from sin actually it's from the penalty of sin So what a huge contrast, because remember, go back now to the first, uh, the first covenant and that those two compartments of the, ho of the holy place, right? The holy of holies was barred or, or closed by a veil, correct? 
And that veil was there because even though they were bringing the blood of bulls and goats and of the red heifer, the washing water of the red heifer, what did those things really not accomplish? It was not a spiritual cleansing. These were a cleansing. Does it say what, what it's for? Verse 13, what kind of cleansing did it do in, under the old system? Cleansing of the flesh. But when it comes to um, the new covenant, it cleanses what in verse 14? Your conscience. What a contrast. Cleansing of the flesh versus cleansing of the conscience. That's why that, that veil, Carol, remained in the outer, at that first sanctuary. And as long as it remained, it let them understand that they had not had an into, a cleansing of their conscience, that all they had done was wash their body. Now, I, I find that this was, um, let me see, hold on a second here. Did I write these down? I did. Well, we're going to do it in the next. We'll do it next. We'll do it. I'm going to hang on to it. Okay. All right. So now let's go into uh, 15 to 22. We're almost done with this chapter. We're actually not far from being finished with this. We move on. Uh, 15 to 22, what do we see concerning the first covenant? I mean, there's a contrast going in f between 15 to 22 and then 23 to 28. What is what are we told about the uh, uh, what is the what is one of the key words that you see in there for one thing? Blood. Okay. Concerning blood, what do you see about concerning the first covenant? How was it inaugurated? With the blood of animals. So the first covenant. This is a contrast for us. First covenant inaugurated with blood of animals. Again, we're going to have a contrast then for the next section. And, and that's going to be in 23 to 28, and then we'll talk about it in more detail if you want to. And in the New Covenant, how was it inaugurated? New Covenant inaugurated. And I'm going to put better blood to get our theme in here. Better blood of Christ. Because it's why it makes it a better covenant. <clears throat> and it was by whose death? His own death, right? Up here was not inaugurated with the blood of animals. And what had to die here? death of an animal uh-huh I just wanted to death of in his own death what a contrast that is between the old and the new okay any points that are going on in there let's go back I want to just hit on the red heifer that was one of the subjects that you and I were to look at this week when we went into numbers um, she also took us in into Isaiah, which I thought was interesting. We'll talk about that one next. Let's start with the red heifer. What did you all learn about that red heifer? Because that was one point that probably was 
new to some of you. We've, we've probably been together long enough that we've done quite a bit of looking at a lot of the other qualities of the temple service and the priests and the, the, the killing of different kinds of animals like bulls and goats and, and lambs. But the red heifer is kind of a specific thing that's mentioned here, right? So what did you learn about that red heifer sacrifice? Well, yeah, but that wasn't in the homework, but yes, okay. Yes, very good. <laughs> Did you hear what she said? The red heifer is one of the, the prophetic things that has to come back in order for them to reestablish. Why do they have to have a red heifer in order to reestablish the new temple, according to what you looked at this week? What, did, what was the, uh, the, the, the cleansing work of the red heifer doing? What did it do? Yeah, it was the per, it was the, what they would do. Give me the process. What would they do with this red heifer, and what were the qualities of this red heifer? More than I knew. You're good. Mm-hmm. Right, or lepers or anything. Very good. Okay, so the purpose for the red heifer was that it was an, uh, a sanctified a, uh, element, which God gave them instructions on how to prepare it, and they used it for the cleansing of things which could not be what? could not be put through what other cleansing agents? Fire. So there were two agencies that they used to do, quote, cleansing. One was water. The other was fire. The water was water that was mixed with the ashes of this red heifer. Okay, and the red heifer had some qualities about him. Go ahead, Daryl, you finish. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. That would kill me. Yes. <laughs> I'd be out of here. Right. Right. Absolutely. You become anemic and you can die, if not other things. Yes, yes. Absolutely. There were, what's really interesting about it is God's, do you think God's major purpose was for health codes? Is that what he, they wanted to know? No. His major point was a spiritual truth, right? He wanted them to have spiritual truth. But you know what's very amazing is in addition to that, to know that, that within those laws, they all had scientific good purposes. You know, it's kind of like, when do you circumcise the child on the eighth day? Why? And then there's medical information behind that. So those are the kind of things that the first time I went through teaching Hebrews, we spent all our time on. It was really, really cool. And I got wrapped all up in there. But I missed all the spiritual, deeper truths 
primarily, I think, because I really wasn't ready. And I just want you all to know this, that when you're studying a book like Hebrews, it, it, it's like peeling an onion or it's like a layered cake, you know, it, it's a, and it's exactly what precept says. It's precept upon precept. And so sometimes the first time you go through something, your first blush of it, um, you're just hitting the surface, sort of. And if that's all you're able to at this point really bring in and comprehend, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. That's your first take of it. Get what you can. Try to retain as much as you can. And then the next time you do Hebrews, you'll be ready to move to that next step. And what he did, though, is so interesting. And, and I remember when we did it the first time, how we got into, not only that, but we were into exactly, well, okay, so how did they do this? Where did they walk? What did they take with them? We did visualizations. I mean, we did all kinds. It was really interesting. But, you know, that's what we did the first time. <laughs> but not this time, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> you guys get to go on this journey with me. <laughs> all right. So there was a practical point to what he was doing, but he had a spiritual truth in it, and that was that the idea was the red heifer would purify. Now, spiritually... What was the message behind the qualities of this red heifer? What, what, what were the qualities required of the red heifer? Had to be unblemished without defect, right? Sounds just like the other uh, sacrifices in their system, right? All right. And um, unyoked. Did you happen to do any research on that part of it, the idea that it was to be unyoked? No? I didn't, I didn't have time. Did anybody? Well, what might... Yeah, there was no labor, no work. Okay, all right. I like that one. Never assigned to another purpose, another work. This was his work. I like that. That's very good insight, Diane. Nice. Okay, that's true. So then it wouldn't be uh, without defect or, un or purified in that way that it had to be. Very cool. Right, right. I thought about the burdens of the world, too, and of man had not been mastered by man. It was, it was this pure vessel that belonged yet to God, not to man. It had not been yoked by man, so I thought about that, too. Okay, very good. Any other points that you saw about that red heifer? Unblemished, without defect. It had to be burned also, right? Where? Was there some specifics on that? Outside the camp, in a clean place. Again, that's the idea of the kosher, right? Uh, then it was kept as water, meaning it was mixed in with water. And it, the purpose of it was to do what? Remove impurities. And so back to what Marion was talking about before, this was their, their uh, assigned um, system for purifying things that could not be burned with fire. And so if and when the temple is re-erected, well, it, I shouldn't say if, when the temple is re-erected and Israel goes back to sacrifices again, and we know that will happen at the end time, in order to purify those things which cannot go through fire, they are going to need a red heifer. And that's why she brought that up, just so you know that. Well, red heifers are very, very rare, and 
is my understanding about 20 years or so ago they had they found their first red pure red heifer but they're pretty rare that and that's another quality of the red heifer is its rarity right and they're gonna all kinds of problems okay so the um but the contrast here is that the um in numbers what was the purpose court num numbers 19 13, or 9.13, I'm sorry, Hebrews 9.13. It did cleansing of what? Okay, so I'm going to put on here, cleansing of flesh. And concerning Jesus in 9.14, cleanses your conscience. Okay, so there's another contrast that's going on there. Perfect. All right. Any other points? I think we're done with that. Any other questions? No? Silence? Okay, we're moving on. Let's go on to chapter 10 now. This is the more difficult passage probably, but it's also very, very interesting. One point that you have to start with is, is just grammatically as you enter into chapter 10, what do you see as the first word in the opening sentence? Four. Now, what does four tell you? That it's linked to what was before it, correct? That it's not, it's not the beginning of a new thought line or a new subject line. Although we're going to see an, a, a different quality concerning our subject come up. Our big picture uh, subject is the new covenant, right? We just left the better tabernacle concerning the new covenant and all of the points that we needed to understand about it that in this particular tabernacle, it's a better one because Christ entered the perfect one, which is in heaven, once for all. And in his inauguration of this particular uh, tabernacle, it was cleansed with better blood of Christ by his own death, as opposed to the uh, death of animals. And that outer sanctuary remained undisclosed as long as that outer temp temp uh, tabernacle remained standing. They knew, they should know, that, the, that their sin had not actually been dealt with. There was only a cleansing of flesh. Now, you and I, I know that uh, as uh, Gentiles looking into this system, especially if you're new in, in the idea of all of this, you know, I can remember as a young girl always thinking that the, the covenant of the law was for salvation. I thought it was. I also thought that their sacrifices dealt with sin um, to me, in my thinking, it was equivalent to what Christ did, although I knew what Christ did was better. I just, but I still thought that, that their sacrifices actually dealt with sin. But did they? Absolutely not. They never dealt with sin. They only were a temporary thing, and it was for external cleansing only. And God continually left that veil in place between the people and the and the inner tabernacle where the presence of God was to let the people know that sin had not yet been dealt with. Isn't that amazing? What a truth. And the, and the purpose of Jesus going down into Hades when he died was to make sure he could speak to those in the bosom of Abraham because they were not yet at the Father as we know. And he was the first of these because he was a propitiation up in heaven. Mm -hmm. Correct? Mm-hmm. He is the sacrifice. 
Christ they needed too. Mm-hmm. Was that first him to share in his testimony or what, what happened? Okay, why are, okay, it, and how does, <laughs> I just want to know, Celeste, what, what, now, how are you talking, how? You just said that these, these people who died before Christ in their Old Testament and that was in the, they had to understand that there was a, okay, hold on tight. Okay, hold on tight. I am going to address it, but in a slightly different way, because I don't want to, that's going to take too long for me to explain the background on that. And for those who have not done what you and I have done together, they're going to be lost. Let's, let's go, let's go back to chapter 10, because I'm going to hit it right now, okay? Let's start with uh, 1 to 4 first, and then when we hit 5 to 10, we're going to cover what you're talking about. So let's do 1 to 4. This one is dying on me. I'm going to get another one. I don't know why these markers do not hold up better, but they sure don't. Okay, one to four. In chapter 10, we said we made point of the fact that it's four, so we know we're in a continuation of the subject yet of this new covenant, right? But in this particular chapter, what is your major uh, subject that's going on here? What seems to be a, a key word in here that you've marked over and over and over and over? sacrifice. So this, the major subject here is the word sacrifice, and concerning the fact that he is a better sacrifice, there's a secondary word that comes up a lot in here, and, what, and that is the word what? What, what, what if you're going to make a sacrifice of an animal, what gets shed? Blood. So the idea that, that the blood also is associated with that. So it's a better blood sacrifice is how I ended up titling that particular section and I don't know how you did yours but what you want to understand is that we've this is the sec the next quality concerning a new covenant that he wants you to understand he wants the these uh listeners of this letter the ones that he's sending to them to understand that this is that his sacrifice was better than what they had under their old system all right and it was going to accomplish for them what the old system could not do uh, what could it not do in one to four Concerning the law or the old covenant, the first covenant, right, law can never take away sins or make the worshiper perfect, however you want to say it, right? Okay, can never take away sins. And then we're going to contrast that then with the next section, which is in 5 to 10. And then we'll, we'll elaborate on it some here if you want to. 5 to 10 then, what does Jesus do in the new covenant? His sacrifice was different because their sacrifice was that of animals, right? The blood of animals. His was what kind of sacrifice? His himself, right? Jesus' sacrifice of himself. And what did it do for us? What was the result? We kind of looked at some of those in the previous chapter, but what does it tell us again here in chapter 5 to 10? That's right. It, it does establish it, but what does it accomplish for us concerning, concerning sin? Verse 10. It sanctifies us, right? Now, we looked at that word sanctified. I want to talk about that real quick. Go look up your word study on sanctified while I write this up here. Sanctified. 
And when, it's, when his blood sanctified us, how long was that work accomplished for? Was that something they still had to go back year by year and continually do? Once for all, right. I love the fact that he just keeps repeating that. Have you noticed it gets repeated once for all, once for all, once for all? Yeah. <laughs> well, they certainly did because for them, their system taught them that they had to keep going back and doing this. So he makes reference to the fact that they keep doing that, and he calls that dead works. And then, and then he contrasts it, and he says, but when Jesus did it, it's once for all, and it sanctified them. So define sanctified when you did your word study. What number? Let's do sanctified over here. Sanctified, number 37, hagios, right, H-A-G-I-A-Z-O, hagiazo. And tell me what does it mean? Okay. Okay. So the first couple of uh, definitions that are given to you in there talk about the idea of setting apart. In reference to this one, do you think that it's simply talking about setting you apart? Okay, good job. Uh, very nice. No is correct. Now, why not? What does he, how does he finish that word sanctify there? Because, you know, for us, we talk about the word sanctification, right? And so it'd be pretty easy for us to look at this word sanctified and think it's talking about sanctification, right? But are we talking about sanctification here or, or something else? What are we talking about? The, the state of being made holy. And in order to do that, in the quali what is the quality in the, in the definition, the word study? What does number three say on that, Margaret? Wasn't, wasn't there a number three for you? There you go, renewing of the soul, and it's done by purifying. Did you all see the word purify in your word study? It's to purify, um, and one of the possibilities is to, to cleanse externally, but do, is that what this is doing, and only an external cleansing? What does it say for, for us in here? Ours was a, as a cleansing of what? The conscience, internal. So you can, you can scratch that one out on your word definition because you know that one does not apply to what we're talking about here. We've already established he's talking about something internal, not external. So then you move to the next part, and it says to purify, purify by expiation, to free from the guilt of sin. Now, does that make sense? Because what have we said? It cleanses what? The conscience right? And if the conscience has been cleansed, that means you've been freed from guilt, correct? So this particular word is to purify. Uh, by expiation, expiation, that's a word we don't use often, huh? To free from guilt of sin. Remember, under the first system, the purpose of them going back year by year by year, the result of that was that it did what for them? 
it reminded them of their sin. But in the new uh, covenant, because you have been sanctified, meaning I'm going to write it over the top, justified, right? Because it's an internal cleansing. You have been now freed from the guilt of sin. It means to purify internally by renewing of the soul. All right, so now, knowing that this is the contrast, the first one could not make that worshiper perfect, but this one sanctified us. You might want to write in in, as a point of reference that it that it was um, justified, not sanctified. It's in our English understanding. It might be a better word for you to have on your in your Bible so that you understand he's not talking about the process after justification of being sanctified. He's saying you have been justified. And this justification was through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay? Now, Kay gave us some insight about the uh, grammatical usages of that particular Greek word, right? So, what did it tell us when, when you applied what you saw there with this definition? How long and at what point and, how, and all that kind of thing? What did you learn about it? Well, she gave you some, what page was it? Somebody help me out. Okay, 66. It's um, the perfect tense indicates the action happened in the past with continuing in the present. The present tense indicates continuing action. The passive voice indicates the subject is acted upon, while the active voice indicates that the subject produces the action. So she gives you all these points that you understand, number five on page 66, so that you understand what various verb tenses uh, stress in the original Greek language, right? So concerning the word sanctified, what do we have? In, in A, it's a perfect passive. So what does that tell you? Pull it out of those definitions she just gave you. With a present and how long? Continuous action. So it's, it's forever and ever and ever. So it was accomplished in the past and it has its effect continually, right? Now, for the believer, t- when we... When do you and I appropriate that for ourselves personally? It's a work that he accomplished, but where, at what point do we appropriate it for our individual benefit at the time of our faith, at the time of acceptance of Jesus Christ? So and in that case, since it was, con- it was done in the past, did you have anything to do with it? So not your works, grace right? Because it's a work that was done in the past. I love this. It goes back to, uh, was it chapter four where he talked about this, that it was a work that was done from before the foundation of the world, right? Let's go back to, um, I think it was in four. Yeah, uh, chapter four, verse three, he says, for we who have believed enter that rest, right? 
although, he says at the end of it, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So it, that's what this verse is right here. You can actually link this back to 4 verse 3 if you want to as a cross-reference. Because we have been sanctified. It's a, it's a permanent and continuous state. It's a, a work that was accomplished in the past, has a continuous result. But chapter 4 tells us we appropriate it when we believe by faith. So you and I individually enter into that, which was already accomplished, and then it has a permanent and continuous result in our life and for our life. Those are the technicalities of doctrine building. And, and I know that for some of you, it's like, right, right over the head, and they're going, it's too much for me. But I, let me tell you something. This is really important for you at least to attempt to grasp because these are the points that you have to understand in order to not get pulled off into believing you can lose your salvation. If you can lose your salvation by works that you do or don't do in your life, what does that tell you about that salvation that you received? How did you receive it? By something you did. But what we absolutely know by this one verse here alone in verse 10, that this was a work that was done in the past and it has a continuous effect and we appropriate it or, or join it or engage it for our personal life through faith. So if it was a work that was done before time and it's a, a, a work of grace, not our own works, then can our own works make us lose it? No, it doesn't even make sense. Since we had nothing to do with it being enacted for us, then we have nothing to do by our actions of doing it. Now, I want to take us back to chapter 8, and I want us to look again, one real quick brush at this, because we covered this pretty thoroughly. But remember in, verse, in chapter 8 is the beginning of this subject of the new covenant. And we're in just one quality of it that he, has, uh, that he is a better sacrifice of this new covenant, right? That his blood does something better than what the old system did. But he, when he talks about this new covenant coming into place, he makes a contrast of what the old one was like versus the new one. What was the major significant difference that makes the new covenant better according to what was promised in verses 8 to 12? Well, in, in 8 to 12, what do you see in, in verse 9? What happened under the old system if they failed? God did not care for them. It would break relationship with God, right? God would cease to care for them. But in the new covenant, which is so much better than the old, he says in verse 12, what? How come it's so much better? Because in this new system, he says, I will be merciful. So it's based on mercy, not on works right? I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So does it mean we never sin in the new covenant? No. We receive the Spirit. We appropriate the, the work of the blood that was done from before the foundation of the world in, in, in its intent by God, but its reality was accomplished at the cross. And you and I appropriate it by entering into it by faith, but that work then is a work that he says because it's by mercy it does not matter if you sin again, even after entering into this covenant. I will never do to you what I did under the old covenant and not care for you. So this is why it's really important for you to try to 
do what this author has encouraged these believers to do, to press into maturity and understanding doctrines of your faith. Because if you understand that you didn't earn it, therefore you can't lose it by your works either. That will hold you fast, that particular thought alone. You know, previous to that, the, the, uh, your knowledge of the subject of covenant would hold you fast as well. Because you understand that a covenant cannot be broken. God cut this covenant. He cut it through whose blood? Through his own blood. His God come in flesh blood. This blood was, cut, was shed for you and I so that he would never have that, that um, uh, situation again under, as he did with this old covenant where by breaking it, by not obeying it, by committing sins, which we will continue to do as people of flesh, but God will never go to that same place he did under the old covenant of not caring for you by in the, in the case of, of um, Israel, where he had to cast them out of the land, there's a visual picture in that for us, that, God, that God's people were to be obedient, true. But in that covenant, specifically, they lost favor with God when they broke it, when they sinned. We will not. We, can, we sin, and does it displease God? Yes. Does God, will God discipline us? You just wait till we get into chapter 12 right? How, and actually at the end of 10. But what you can know is this, that in this new covenant, he is, it is a covenant of mercy and grace, and he will remember our sins no more, okay? So let's get this up here. Um, a covenant of mercy... Remembering sins no more. So that was established back in chapter 8 for us, 8-12. And it was contrasted with what is stated up in 8-9. Okay? So you can take, go back and look. So that was just a review point. I wanted to bring it back up again. Yes? <clears throat> mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. If it, that's exactly right. You're absolute, that is an excellent point. The, and I think the better you know that, the better you're able to really refine the, your understanding of that through all these different things that you come into contact in the Word of God, the better security you have. So then when you go back to chapter 6, and he talks about it being a sure hope, and it's a sure hope based upon who? God himself, who is, it, it is impossible to lie. And if God said he will do this for you, you can absolutely depend upon it. All right, let's move on then to, one thing I want, I want to show you something here. Um, two things I want to do. Number one, let's do, oh, I wish I had more time. Um, I want you, I'm going to throw out some verses for you. You're going to have to go do them on your own. I'm just going to tell you about it. Uh, write down these verses. Hosea 6.6, 6, Micah 6.6-8, 6, 6 Micah 6.6-8. 6, 6 Micah 6.8 6, is my favorite verse. It has been forever and ever. I love that verse. 1 Samuel 15.22, 15.22, Psalm 51, 
16. That'll mess up my dyslexia right there. Uh, Isaiah 1, <laughs> 11 to 20. Now, those are some verses that are going to show you something about God. 11 to 20 in chapter 1 of Isaiah. Okay. Now, look at the quote that's given to us in chapter 10. Hold on. Let me go back here to it. I told you all that one of the things I really like to do is mark off. I'm going to show it to you again. When I do my observation worksheets, I always like to put a little box and very lightly color in any place that I come across a quote so that when I'm looking at my homework, I can just real quickly see, oh, there's a quote, there's a quote, there's a quote. What is, how does an author, as far as literarily speaking, what is the purpose of making quotes? Evidence, okay. Okay, to validate, in other words, that a point that he has stated in his writing ha has strength behind it because it's been something that God has said previously, right? So it strengthens his, his um, discussion or his de debate or his argument, right? So he's making all these statements, and then he supports it with a quote. And then he makes a statement, and then he supports it with a quote to validate or confirm things, right? So that's one of the reasons why when you're doing inductive Bible study, it's really important for you to kind of mark off or note off on your, on your observation worksheets when you do see a quote because the purpose for that quote is that it strengthens his, his statements, right? So he, he is going along and he's talking about the impossibility for the blood of, of bulls and goats to take away sins. And therefore, he says when he comes into the world, what? Somebody read verse... Um, Five to seven for me. Who wants to read that out loud real quick? Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Okay. Did anybody have a problem with that statement? Wait a minute. He doesn't want sacrifices? He has no pleasure in them? Who instituted them? Who put them in place? Who told Israel, you have to, you have to, you have to? So what is he saying? What, what is that about? What is going on? Okay. Okay, can you explain a little bit more than that? It wasn't for him, it was for us? Okay, it was the whole purpose to the system was that it was to teach them something about God and relationship with God, right? It wasn't actually effectual to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish in the end, right? So then he makes the contrast in here. He says, um, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, now, when he who comes into the world? When he, Jesus, when God in flesh comes into the world, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Now, those verses I gave to you as cross-references are all verses that show you this is a principle that God has always taught. It is not, it is not that Israel never understood that relationship was more important to God than their executing of system. 
Yes, they had system, and yes, there were severe penalties for not following system. But the point to system was to point to God in relationship with God, right? It's not the letter of the law. It is what? The spirit of the law. Do we have a book in the New Testament that tell, tells us we are to not walk by the letter of the law, but to walk by the spirit of God? Does anybody know where that is? Galatians. Galatians says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. God has always had this same principle. The, uh, the, the verses in there are so awesome. Let me just read a couple. Um, oh, do I have them? You know what? I didn't, I didn't print them out. Sorry, I can't do it for you. But the, basically, this is what they say. Sacrifice is better than, uh, or uh, obedience is better than sacrifice. He desires obedience over the sacrifices of his people. And so when Jesus makes this statement, when, God, when he quotes this statement from, from the Old Testament, who is it that said this, that wrote this down? Where, did, where is this quoted from? Psalm. And who wrote the psalm? David. So did David understand that his heart relationship with God was more important than his strict obedience to the law itself? Yes. Did he understand that? Do you think most of Israel really understood that principle? Well, they were supposed to. Do you think David was, I, was, he was so special? Was he all by himself in the ability to have that knowledge? What about all these others? Micah. Do you think Micah was the only one on, in all of Israel that knew that sacrifice was not the major thing, that it was relationship? What about Hosea? Was he the only one? What about Samuel? Was he the only one? What about Isaiah? Was he the only one? Are you getting my drift? God has always made uh, himself known to his people through his prophets. And guess what? Every one of these prophets quoted this to them. He says, thus saith the Lord. And they would proclaim these things to the people. God desires obedience more than sacrifice. That was, a per that was an understanding Israel had. You and I miss that so often, I think, because we're trying to learn in hindsight all these things. But Israel understood it. Isaiah knew it. Micah knew it. Samuel knew it. David knew it. Isaiah knew it. And those are just a few quotes. And in this New Testament, guess what? The author of this book knew it. And he makes the quote under inspiration of God and says, Jesus, when he came into the world... He knew it, obviously. He's God, right? And he says, because you prepared what for me instead of sacrifices of animals? A body, my body. That's what is going to rectify this issue concerning sin. My sacrifice of a body, which is God himself. God will die for you. And that is a principle they understood always. They should have understood always. Now, if they didn't, it was willful ignorance. And it goes back to chapter 6 again and 5, where he says, you guys have, have remained immature babies. Why? Because you have not pressed into the knowledge of God's word. Did they have the book of Hosea? Did they have the book of Isaiah? Did they have the book of, of Samuel, of Micah? Did they have the books of the Psalms available for them to know and to hear? Did they not, most of them even memorize them? Yeah. So this is a truth message that's not new to the New Testament. It's a truth message that God always has desired relationship over ritual. Yes. Yes. Yep. 
Yep. So you're ma- at least you're making an excellent parallel, and you're bringing it right into our current relationship in, in the church today. Do we still that, see that today where we have people who are so submerged in the checking the box of what they think they're supposed to be doing rather than being focused on their relationship? Is, is our relationship with God where our heart really is? This is where it needs to be. And God says the way to do that, the way to have proper relationship with God, this author is rebuking them sternly on the, the fact that they have not been in the word of God to have that relationship, to, know, to really know him, know his truth, know his principles, know his character, know his, the heart of the law rather than the letter of the law. They, ha- they were supposed to have done that, but they had not. So this author rebukes them about that back in chapter 6. So now we're in 10, and we're going to move forward. The first uh, covenant, the law could never make the worshiper uh, perfect, right? In the new covenant, Jesus did that. That's in 5 to 10. His sacrifice sanctified us once for all. So that sanctification is speaking of justification. He justified us once for all. Um, I want you to go back to 915, though. There's one point that we skirted over, and I'll bet most people have not made this full connection. I just want to do it. He says in 915, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transmissions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Translate that into English. Somebody give me an understanding of what he's saying there. That's right. So in the case of the new covenant, who died? Jesus. So Jesus died in order that what what would they be able to inherit? The eternal promises. Now, what eternal promises are, are, is being spoken of there? What were the eternal promises? Redemption in, in specific, which could actually go all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? But, but when it's speaking to Israel, the nation, who was the first redemption promised through? Abraham. Abraham, Isaac. So you can go back to Genesis 15, those eternal, eternal redemptive promises. And there was promise to, to Israel as a nation, a land, a seed, and a nation. Who's the seed according to Galatians 3? Jesus himself. That seed is Christ right? And it's very interesting because later in Galatians 3, it says, and his flesh was that veil which was rent for you. So that veil which stood as the, as the barrier between uh, Israel being in the presence of God and having access to God, that barrier was there because of their sin and it had not been dealt with. But when Jesus came, when the seed came, when the promise came, then that veil was rent and now access is made available by what? Is it automatically made available? Does everybody get it? According to um, chapter 4, 3 and 4, how do you enter? By faith. By faith. Okay. We're making some good progress, you guys. What? Oh, no. Okay. I'm I'm getting there. Okay. So, Celeste, I got so many more notes here. You and I will talk privately later. Okay. The death of Jesus made, made him the mediator of a new covenant. Okay, so that's the first point. Now I want you to connect that then to verse 10, to chapter 10, verse 9. 
what then happened? He says the death came, right? Uh, a death has taken place for the redemption so that they could receive the promise of the in in eternal inheritance, correct? And in 9, he says then that when he did that, when he came to be that sacrifice for us, that what was accomplished at the close of, ver of verse 9 there, what, what ended and what began? The old covenant was put away. It was put aside. It was ended. It was shut up, basically. It's gone. It becomes ineffectual, un unproductive, without value. It's, it ceases to be. It's gone, right? Okay, if it's gone, now go to chapter 10 where we hit our difficult passage and look at verse 26. And he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why not? If you, if you trample underfoot, that's what he goes on to talk about, trampling underfoot the Son of God, and if you consider the blood of this new covenant as unclean, not satisfactory, right? If you, what was the other thing concerning the Holy Spirit? If you um, insult the spirit of grace, because remember back at chapter 8 I just took you to, it's going to be a, a new covenant. It's going to be one of grace and mercy. And if you reject that, at this point, this author has established what happened to the previous covenant. It's gone. So now can you understand why there's no sacrifice left? If you reject the son, what have you got to revert back to? Nothing. Do you think this is a really profound statement to this particular audience? Yeah. Oh, yes. Because for some reason, possibly some of them were considering the going back to it. Maybe. I mean, it doesn't totally say that, but there, there, it alludes to that possibility that maybe they would regress back to it, that they would not press into the assembling of themselves together under this new covenant, finding the, the blood of the new covenant as satisfactory and complete and finished and, and perfect and sanctifying for them, but instead that maybe they would stop assembling, and maybe that also means they might be going back to an old system, which, by the way, in P.S., is done, is gone. It was abolished when the new one was put in place. Why? Because Jesus died. Who made the first covenant with Abraham? God. Who is Jesus? God in flesh. God died. When God died, what happened to that will? It was enacted so that they could receive the eternal promises, right? So God died. Now the old one is enacted. Now you and I can receive those, the, the, the benefits of that will. Is it starting to make sense? It's so awesome. It really is awesome. All right. So we see the death of Jesus. Made, the, made him the mediator of a new covenant. And that's in 9.15. And therefore we could inherit those promises. And I'm going to do it this way. We know Jesus is a cross, right? 
you put a, you put usually if you're going to key mark something you would go oh Jesus right but I'm also going to do it this way for the sake of understanding that it was God that died on the cross and since God made the covenant promises to Abraham then when he died that enacted the will that they would then be able to qualify to inherit until your inheritor that is giving you something dies you don't get to receive it so God died on the cross enacting it that you could you could receive those eternal blessings does that make sense okay and so now we can inherit those promises and then he says therefore therefore the first covenant is taken away and that's in that's in uh, 10 9 then therefore he says in chapter 10:26 therefore if you trample underfoot that blood of the uh, or the son and trample underfoot that you consider that blood is um, unclean then there remains no sacrifice for you because there isn't one left there is no other acceptable offering for, and and there is no other covenant that remains except the one in the son the other one is gone what does that tell you about the jews today if they're trying so hard to reestablish that old covenant, right? They're trying so hard to rebuild that old temple. They can. They, could, they can, but, but what has happened to that old covenant? It's gone. it's gone. They just don't get it yet. They don't understand that, but it's gone. There is no, and so this makes me wonder about how many Christians do you know today that keep wanting to go back and start reenacting so many of those old Jewish laws and customs too they want us you know continue to do these different now i'm not saying you can't honor them you can't learn from them you can't even participate in them and enjoy that so that you learn something but if you actually want to go back to practicing that on a week uh, the sabbath on a uh, uh, as they did in, in their old system or sacrifices as they did under their old system and in israel the country of israel today that is what they want to do they want to go back establish that temple and they will god says they will and why will they? Have they learned this message that we've looked at in chapter uh, 8, 9, and 10? Not yet. Because you enter into this, when you enter into this, you, what you have understood is whether you believe it or not, the first covenant has been, has been abolished. It's finished. It's done. What Jesus did put it out, put it to rest, and, he, and, it, and it could only be put to rest by the death of the one who made it. There's nothing there to go back to. That's the point. Very good. Very good. These people were supposed to learn that. Uh, Marianne, was, did I see your hand? Or somebody back there, I saw a hand go up. No. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, absolutely. It's another quality which he doesn't address here, but yes. I mean, the, the good thing about all these doctrinal truths that we're learning is, is there's all kinds of aspects and qualities of it, and they're not all taught in one place. But absolutely, the resurrection. I do think what you're saying, though, was addressed back in chapter 1 right? When he introduces Jesus and he talks about him being the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his, and it says, and then he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God and sat down waiting until God makes his enemies a footstool, right? 
Okay, I know. I, we're almost out of here. i got to hurry up. Okay, so Jesus, let's go 11. I'm going to put on here 11 to 18. I'm not really doing a very good job of writing this. Can I just talk you through it? Would that be okay? Let me just talk you through the rest of this very quickly. Um, I'm going to go over by about five minutes, Lois. I'm sorry, but I, I do want to get to this next part that's important. So 11 to 18, then Jesus' offering was perfected, and it did perfect those who are sanctified. And we looked at the word perfect. We won't go into that. We know what that's talking about, right? All right. Then in 19 to 25, he says, by Jesus' blood, we have confidence to draw near to God. And then he follows it with this section that is so terrifying, right? Which we didn't get to dig into, and I wanted to so badly. Um, what I would like for you to do, though, is to start, before you go into those verses, which are so controversial in interpretation, I want you to go back to the Word of God in the clearly uh, clearly defined, clearly explained passages that talk about your salvation, which we've already talked about over and over. You cannot lose, right? Let me give you one. John 3, 18 and John 5, 24. They're both in the same book, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 18 and chapter 5, verse 24. They're going to be on the notes when I send them out to you, so you'll have them. But in that verse, he says, truly, truly, I say unto you, what does that mean? It is absolute. Who's speaking this? Jesus himself, out of the mouth of God, he says to you, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed out of death into life. Now, can you take the verses in, at the end there of chapter 10 then and make those say that you can lose your salvation? Yeah. No, not, not with that verse and not with all the other knowledge we've already talked about previously concerning covenant making, right? And concerning the work which has been done from before the foundation of the world. It's the work that you enter in by grace. It's not your works anyway. You didn't gain it by works. You can't lose it by works, all right? Uh, Romans 8.1, therefore, it's, it's Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Woohoo! No condemnation. So you can read that all you want. Try to come to your understanding. We'll talk about it next week, okay? Um, <clears throat> the evidence of faith is seen in faithfulness. I want you to look at this. John 5.24, oh, I already did that one. Sorry. Rome, Romans 8, 1 to 14. Now, it's a lengthy one in Romans 8, 1 to 14. I gave you one. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? But he goes on, if you read that whole passage, and he says, those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, what has he told us back in Hebrews 3? He says, but encourage one another so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So what he's saying is that the evidence is if you are truly a believer, you will be faithful, and God will hold you. He is not going to allow you to, to go into to a place without disciplining you if you are truly his. Now, if you're not his you certainly can end up right where he's going to warn them about. He's saying, look, if those who are unbelievers do these things, which you guys are trying to do, which is trample underfoot the, the, the uh, Son of God, 
and consider his blood as unclean and not sufficient, right? And, and um, insult the Holy Spirit in this way. And if, you, if you're among anyone who would do that, not only do you deserve death, but it, death will come. That kind of condemnation will come to anyone who does that. But then he follows it with a statement. Did you notice? He goes to verse 32. Do you see the word but? But what? But remember the former days when after you being enlightened, in other words, having been sanctified, having been redeemed, having received the Holy Spirit, you endured great conflict of suffering. So then he goes on and exhorts them saying, I expect better things of you. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember back in chapter uh, 6 where he did the same thing? He said, but of you we, des- we expect better things, right? Go back to uh, 6, uh, verse 9. But beloved, he, he makes the warning there in chapter 6 where he talks about discipline, of the burning of land, which is a, which is a practice of disciplining the land to burn off the, the, uh, the bad fruit, Right? to make it healthy and productive for the next growing season. And then he talks about that that can happen if, you, if the fruit of your work is not um, showed up or strengthened or, or built up by true knowledge of God. If you are so lazy that you won't get into the Word of God, he's saying those works that you're going to do because you're so lazy are going to be burned up. But... Verse 9, but, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Do you see it? It's almost a parallel to what he does in 10. He says, but, remember the former days. And he goes, he takes them right back to say, but of you I believe better things. All right? So what you have to do then is look at, at verse 26 to 31 and say, then what is he doing in there? Well, if you've ever been a parent, have you ever put the fear of God in your kids? Like, I, you are going to be grounded for 100 years. You're never going to see the light of day. And have you ever done that? Does that almost sound like what he's doing here? However, what, what you have to understand is he is making true statements. People who do do that, which is trampling underfoot God's word and basically rejecting that Holy Spirit, they will be judged. And they will spend their life, their, their eternal life in damnation. But you, if in fact you have, become a a believer if in fact you are in faith you will not and he goes on to say but of you basically don't you remember your old days you you have need of of uh, endurance and he pulls them back in after he basically yells at them and says you cannot do this you guys are acting like the unheathen the heathens of the world my mother used to tell me that if the whole world is going to jump off of a bridge would you do it too I'm going yeah (laughs) right well that's kind of what he's saying to them look you cannot do this all right I got to quit before before Lois hangs me up to dry but this was a great lesson I hope it helped a lot study that out in chapter 10 a little bit more thoroughly and now that you've had some foundation laying you should be able to have some really good conversation next week on what that is actually talking about there in 10 where he disciplines them okay